demons to some, angels to others. We are the pod people, and we have such sights to show you. I'm the Hellblazer, Matisse Van Rossum. I'm Mr. Butterball, Ben Sheets. That is just a downright lie, little man. (laughs) And I'm the Chatterer, Cleveland Mosier. Now that's accurate. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's it's Hellraiser time, uh, an episode that I've been looking forward to since we started the podcast. Um, but before we jump in, Ben, you have an update on uh, on our predictions oh, game yeah. Let's, from uh, last week's episode. Now that Glass is out and the episode is a smashing success, of course. Um, we the episode, have... not the film. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. So I have the the opening weekend box office, and believe it or not, Glass did slightly better opening weekend than Split. Interesting. Um, Okay, so the final tally for Glass was a Rotten Tomatoes score of 36 and an opening weekend box office of 40 million. Nice. Tisu said it would get a 65 on Rotten Tomatoes. I said 47, and you said 45. Yeah, should have gone lower. So, so Cleveland, you won the the Rotten Tomatoes score. Hell yeah! And right on the money, you guessed 40 million no for shit. box office. No shit! You oh fuck! Were right on the Damn. money for that. Who, Killed who it. Who's that, man? That All right. So two for two. Yeah. Starting uh, out strong. strong start. Good. Yeah, so we got that going for us. Uh, we'll see how it goes in a week or two with uh, Velvet Buzzsaw. All right. Well, uh, with that, let's get into the hell raising. Yes. Uh, well, I'll let you uh, introduce the movie okay. a little bit since uh, it was your uh, yeah, choice. Yeah, totally. Um, Hellraiser is the 1987 film written and directed by Clive Barker based on uh, the novella uh, also written by Clive Barker, uh, The Hellbound Heart. It has spawned nine or ten sequels, the most recent of which came out last year. Many of which are um, Clive barking up the wrong tree. Yeah. Well, this this is the only one uh, that Clive Barker had anything to do with. I think he might have written some of the second one. It, um, yeah, it's funny because the sequels are definitely a masochistic exercise. <laughs> they which, uh, they quickly they fits quickly the become theme so. of the the series very well, <laughs> albeit pretty unintentionally. Um, but it's about a uh, family who moves back into the husband's uh, childhood home, I believe, um, and they discover that his. Uh, sort of degenerate brother has been living there and um, has gotten sucked into a dimension of pain and pleasure from which he must escape by consuming the flesh and blood and stuff of people to add skin to his bones. Um, and yeah, really strong and dry. Yeah, very, very strong and dry. And he spends most of the movie extremely wet. And uh, I, I love this movie. This is one of my favorite horror movies of all time. Cleveland, this was your first time seeing it. Yeah, Skippy. Um, I would like to know some of your just general thoughts off the bat, because I'm jealous because 
you got to experience Hellraiser for the first time. Yeah. Uh, which is something that I wish I could go back and do because uh, it's a fucking awesome movie. So it's it's always been very high on my list, but we all have one of those the lists. That, oh yeah, you know, just things get buried. Mine's a list enormous. Of shame. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, definitely list of shame. I have and, a huge list of shame. Yeah, I, I've always heard that I would enjoy it. That it would it would be good. Um, and I feel like I watched this film just at the perfect time in my life too. Um, you know, we're working on a horror game. I'm more into horror and cinema than ever before. I've got such a backlog of favorites that mirror this film. You know, with you know. The, the thing and and whatnot i just I, I i go crazy for practical effects and this movie is rich 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 with it and short answer holy shit i loved it oh my god it was so good like so good so what were you expecting when you went in because i know that the general shape of this movie defied a lot of your expectations based on just what you knew about the movie before going in why don't you talk a little bit about what you what you thought it was going to be and how it was not that in a good way i think yeah almost exclusively um i was not expecting it to be that uh well written uh, all the characters are, are well-motivated, believable in their actions, and the world is so tight. And not just the, the, the spooky, cool, hellraiser stuff, which we see uh, very little of their realm, but the natural world, in which is the majority of the story takes place in the house. Very believable. Um, the film was so cohesive. You, you could tell that it was directed by the same person who wrote the story. Um, yeah, and and that can that can often make a huge impact on cohesion, uh, and and trueness to form. Like the the film is very clear in its vision, and man, is it a fucking awesome vision. Yeah, you you said after we watched it that you had been expecting it to be kind of a uh, I guess Friday the Thirteenth Nightmare Slashery. on Elm Street kind of yeah. thing with with some some teenagers uh, getting killed off by Pinhead and the other Cenobites, right? Correct. Yeah, I thought it was going to be like oh, there's an old house and a bunch of like teens move in or whatever. One of them finds a cube because I'd heard about this the cube or whatever and. It bounces between them, and the Cenobites come in and try and kill it and start killing everybody. Not the case at all. Very glad for that. It was actually a much more dynamic plot line and one I hadn't necessarily seen anyway before in horror. And, yeah, much, much better for it. Yeah, it really bucks the trend uh, of the 80s of doing, you know, your uh, standard slasher tropes with yeah. a boogeyman evil villain mm -hmm. and lots of teen stupid teens getting killed off yeah because you always see pinhead next to jason and michael myers right and well that's and they're so different that it, yeah i i wouldn't see them there because they're not ghosts they're not they're not monsters in the same way Right. And what I think is interesting about Hellraiser is I think it's kind of comparable to the original Friday the 13th in the sense that the iconic villain of the franchise is a very small part of the actual first movie. Yeah, I would I would totally agree. Sort of like, yeah, yeah in, in the original Friday the 13th, you know, the, the killer is Jason's mother. And Jason is not in the movie at all, really, until the very end. And that's in, like, a, a nightmare, too, right? And 
the same in this, like, Pinhead is the iconic villain of the Hellraiser franchise. Like, every Hellraiser is, you know, he is the villain. Except in this one, he's sort of in the periphery. It's much more about Frank and... And even uh, then, he, they don't... The, the Cenobites don't even act as the villains, really. No, not not and, really. And much like, you know, the original Friday the 13th, I would argue that Pinhead is really not, like directly a threat yeah you know in this movie it's mostly frank and his urge to you know reanimate himself that's like the driving antagonistic force right no he's he himself is definitely the villain uh brother frank is yeah yeah like uh and i think that was the the other key thing that threw me uh, or at least surprised me uh was the neutrality of the cenobites you know, they're, they're about taking it to realms of pain and pleasure. Their goals are, are very biblical. You activate the cube because you obviously you want the cube, so we have come. They don't act as a curse. They act as usually as a welcome gift. Like if the, right. the cube is usually intentionally activated, it is designed to be so they can t- yeah, take it's a, it it's a Yeah, it's a puzzle box. If you solve the puzzle box, you open the door, the Cenobites come, and they take you to a nightmare BDSM torture realm where pain and pleasure are indistinguishable from one another. Right, and generally, the people who activate the box, it would be assumed, it is sort of assumed in the world building, do it willingly. Like, they, right. they want to go there well, and, that's, and get, on, get in that sweet, sweet It's the first thing we see action. in the first thing we see in the movie, we see... Frank buying the the puzzle box from some mysterious man in what looks like Asia or the Middle East. Or yeah, it's, it's funny. This movie somewhere. starts like the exact same way that Gremlins does. True. It kind of does. Yeah, <laughs> no, that it, it is very similar. And then we immediately see him opening the box and the Cenobites coming and and pulling him into many pieces with hooks. And I love we get the, that shot right after of them, like, rearranging his face on the table, like all mm-hmm. the pieces of his face. So it, it sets the bar, like, really high at the beginning with, like, oh, my God, what the fuck am I getting into here? And then it, like, pulls back from that for a long time. Right, and it, it does such a great job of setting the tone, and I never felt like uh, it, it overplayed its hand at the beginning either like it's and it's such a visceral sequence i mean a person just getting like suddenly ripped into another dimension with hooks yeah and like and you see the the satellite like this room with like all these like hanging hooks on the walls and just bits of flesh everywhere yeah uh, yeah but it and it's it really brings you in it's like what the fuck is going on what is this room what's what's happening and then you know it cuts to the house well, is, and... well also because then it cuts to that same room but completely empty and then it pans down the stairs and you see his brother and his brother's wife coming into the house. And then you get all the exposition about like, oh, yeah, this is, a, you know, our childhood house. And, uh, you know, we're going to move in here to get away from the hustle and bustle of the city. Yeah, it's a really strong start. And it really helps because the the effects work are some of the best practical effects work in yes. movie history. history. Um, they are just fantastic gore, really visceral, really gross out. Yeah, all live, I, I would all tangible. Too. I would say that for me, this is in terms of 
practical effects. I would say it's the grossest film I've seen other than The Thing, the original Thing. Yeah. Uh, in terms of like the, the tangibility of those effects. And, and I would say even more so than The Thing, how much it lingers on a lot of the gore and yeah. stuff and gives you time to just absorb and appreciate the work that went into the effects. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's gross, you know? Like, I was fucking munching on popcorn while we were watching this movie. <laughs> And there are a couple of times where I'm like eating popcorn and like really nasty things are happening. I'm just like, I'm kind of losing my appetite a little bit. <laughs> and I, I think that's that speaks really well for a, for a movie. To say something for me, if like I got hungry, I was like, oh, this is so well done. It's yeah, you're, cool eating, you're eating pizza too with oh, red yeah. sauce uh, and everything. It was and... pizza, like, and it was delicious. Like, and uh, yeah, I just, I get, I get so into the, the making of of it that the events themselves get kind of yeah well that like when they were incredibly effective that's the thing is that (laughs) it's it's based on you know clive barker's novella and he adapted this film himself so it's one of those things where the person who generated the ideas originally has full creative control which is refreshing and usually makes for a good film i think Uh, i haven't read the hellbound heart but um, this movie really feels throughout like it is a complete vision of a single person. It doesn't feel like there was a lot of conflicting stuff getting in the way. And I, I think that's part of what makes it so tight. Yeah, and I think a lot of its shortcomings are definitely carried by the strength of its effect. I slightly disagree with, uh, you know, the the tightness of the story. I do think... There's a a main character shift almost in the second half of the movie that I don't love, but I don't mind it too terribly much because uh, the effects again are it's so strong that it makes me forgive it more. I found I found it to feel less structured in in that that shift, but I did feel it was organic. the The progression of events made sense to me well enough. And I and I I think it's I think it's necessary to I'm I'm not quite sure what the alternative would be. Yeah, what the alternative would be. There is definitely like a, a shift in the main characters cuz in the first half the main character is very much uh Julie, the wife of uh Frank's brother and we we learn that like she had been having an, aff- an affair with Frank before and then once the brother like cuts himself in that room upstairs and it it sort of reanimates Frank as as a as a a, a muscle man, <laughs> the blood brought. Which back. speaking of which, we'll uh, we'll we'll get in we'll get into that because okay. I I think that that sequence in itself deserves talking about. Yeah. But I I just want to address the 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 character shift that we're talking about. But you know Frank convinces Julie that he has or is it Julia? It's Julia. Sorry. Um, convinces Julia that. The way to make him whole again is is the blood. The blood brought him back, so more blood will put more flesh on his bones and eventually skin, and then he'll be back to normal, and they can run away together. And Frank is very much this sadomasochistic scumbag, uh, but I guess is the best dick that she's ever had in her life, because, man, she'll do anything for him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but... Then at, at a certain point, like, yeah, she's she is doing his bidding. 
So at that point, we need a new main character because she's fully on the side of the villain. So at that point, we have to shift perspectives to somebody else in order for there to not just be an ending when she does fully revive Frank and that's the end of it. Sure, I don't uh, disagree that it's not necessary. I just don't think her storyline is nearly as compelling as the Frank story. You know what? Yeah. You know what? I'll uh I'll even agree with you. I didn't see it as a huge problem with the film, but I I do I do think that the answer is uh not to not have a shift or whatever else, but just to have a a small sequence or some sort of interaction with the daughter that gives her a bit of originality um and a bit of her own characterization. So she's not just daughter protagonist. Yeah, and I think like the the Frank stuff is so strong. That whole storyline is really compelling. That the the Christy storyline, Kirsty, uh, Kirsty, um, her storyline is not quite as compelling. Um, you get some nice set pieces. For example, the one at the hospital is great right. with her, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more. But as a whole, I think. No, she's whole, less compelling. Yeah, that whole storyline is a yeah. little weaker. I think like the 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 I think all it's the that it's solid. Like her storyline is solid. It's just that. It's just held up next to Frank and Julia, and the, yeah, and even the husband. Like he's he's a, a pretty believable and and quirky like yeah. of a character. And I, I did I did enjoy like how how he was portrayed as well. Yeah, yeah. so I, just next to those other characters, I think it's. I mean, maybe maybe her her arc isn't as interesting, but I th- I think she feels developed and and like she exists in the world. That's true. Like yeah. she is sort of a grounding they, presence in the. But movie. yeah, very much so because we we see her early on and we know that she has this animosity with Julia, who obviously is not her her mother, you know, but she's married to her dad, so she sort of has to be supportive yeah. for him. And you you get the sense that she does care very much for her dad, and her dad is living in this house where, unbeknownst to him, these horrible arcane murder rituals are happening. So, you know, it, it makes—I I think it works to have her— you know, sort of be that that grounding force, even though she doesn't like Julia, that, you know, she's constantly checking in on her dad to make sure everything's fine with him, and that's what ends up with her getting sucked into the sure, horror. Sure, I mean, as a, like, a tertiary point to the Frank story, it works. However, the stuff on her own, for example, with the, the creepy homeless guy that kept appearing... Yeah. It kind of feels unnecessary, you know? Like, it's not bad, like... It has but... it has very strange payoff at the end. Yes. And but it like, does, yeah. but at least it does have payoff. When we got the whole scene where she's working at the pet store, and the homeless guy is just eating all... Comes in and I don't eats the crickets. I, I don't either. I think it's, I think it's... I think it's just weird enough. Like, that, that sequence is fine. I think the payoff for it is what makes that scene weird like yes i i mean it's it's a it's a fun scene in itself but it has no real narrative purpose yeah i would say oh so yeah like the 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 homeless guy does feel a little bit like uh except all i think i think all it does is it sort of 
starts wearing away at Kirsty's psyche a little bit to to make her more susceptible to the the spooky stuff that starts happening after like it's not a particularly important scene but it it I think it makes more sense to have Kirsty kind of attuned to weird things happening around her rather than just being thrown into it and then blindly accepting that cuz you know after that scene we have her going back to her house with that with the dude and she has the nightmare about her dad dying and she calls her dad in the middle of the night like I had a bad dream that you died like I have to make sure that mm-hmm. you're okay so I think it's I think it's it, it works to sort of ease that stuff in I agree it's not as it's not as compelling as the arc with Julia and Frank that that is the 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 heart of the film and it's the most important part and the most interesting part for sure. But I think the, the tertiary stuff, uh, and even the secondary stuff doesn't hurt the film for me, I think. Oh yeah. And I was definitely worried for her character in the second half of the film too. Sure. Yeah. No, I think, I think she's, even though she doesn't have as strong a development as some of the other characters, I think she's a likable enough and sympathetic enough character. And time has given into her development that, yeah. And that you, you do, worry for her which you should in a and i film. will say you know unlike a lot of the trend of 80s horror movies especially you know in similar genres to this the acting in this movie is quite good yes you know absolutely. it has a lot of really strong actors in it and not just shitty teenagers. Well, which... and that's and that's the thing too, and not even just the actors, but the characters. Like usually in slasher movies like this, you have like your one main character who they put at least a modicum of effort into you caring about, but then everybody else around that character is just fodder to be killed, right? For instance, like Nancy in Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, she's the only one you really give a shit about. All the other kids are disposable but in this movie i think all of the characters are interesting enough that you are invested in what is happening to them um whether you like them or not you're invested in what's happening with frank and with julia and with larry the brother and with kirsty and it's not just like these people are are just fodder to be killed you know for the for the bodies Julia just goes to bars and picks up random men and brings them back to the house, you know, like that's fine. I have no problem with that. And I appreciate that all of the central characters are interesting enough. And I'm not just like, okay, I don't give a fuck about this person on, on the note of uh, Julia going out and bring, bring home the, the random guys to from bars. I really did. I felt like that was like kind of a perfect crime too, because like any of those, those people are, are going to um, do whatever they can to not be found. They want anonymous sex. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So she's able to just like snag whoever. And I, I that was neat. That yeah. was a cool, like, like the, well, the events surrounding the house, like even though like the dad is wholly aware, unaware of all these murders going on, like you, you believe that he is and that you feel yeah. like you might be too in that situation. Totally. And like you said earlier, like he's such just a believably like sort of useless, pathetic cuck. But still likable. But also still yeah. likable because it's like you you can tell he's trying. Yeah. Like he's he a is, good guy. He's, he's, a, he's a good guy and he is very 
he's completely useless. Yeah. And it's cool, too, because, like, the movie doesn't do it in a way where it tries to sell, like, that the good guy mentality. Like, because just Julia's a miserable person. Oh, she like, absolutely that's, is. That's what the answer is. Like, really, he's a nice guy getting cucked. He's not, like, it's not a, a flaw to his character. Like, right. it's a flaw to Julia. Yeah. And that was cool. Like, that, that was... No, yeah, she... It is It is great. And that's, that's part of the reason that I like Kirsty so much is because she's close with her dad... And she cares about her dad, but she acknowledges that Julia is a miserable, a miserable yeah. piece of shit. She, she sees her for who she is, right? Yeah. Do y'all want to talk about the the scene? Uh, yeah, yeah. When, when Frank comes back, which is relatively early in the film, they they find the the room where Frank had been sleeping, and it looks like the den of a heroin addict, mm-hmm. which um, I think is really great towards kind of the ideas behind the box in itself because you think about it and it's like who would open the box to begin with and i i see it as a cool metaphor for because you because you don't you open the box because you don't know what it's really capable of just like Mm -hmm. getting on just like shooting up heroin for the first time i think like sex addiction addiction directly just addiction addiction in general and that theme is continued throughout the movie especially Mm -hmm. for example with julia whose whole mo is continuing on murdering these people because it brings her pleasure even though it also brings her so much pain and because she's addicted to that pain (laughs) she's she's sort of just standing in in this empty derelict room reminiscing about all the time she banged frank and meanwhile her husband is downstairs trying to drag a mattress up the stairs and lacerates the fuck out of his hand on a nail man it's it's grisly it is grisly it's that shot is great um i I love it too because the the foley is phenomenal for that sequence julia is when she's reminiscing about frank you're hearing the sounds uh in the flashback of their their lovemaking but right. it translates directly the the sound of it translates directly into the guys like shifting the mattress just like up jerking the, the mattress yeah and it's it's only in the audio like it's not a visual like they don't make it clear in the visuals that transition so it's very cerebral like oh there's so many the film is so good at that like having those those dream like sequences that kind of throw you yeah like it's you, it's very you get a sense that the the cube sort of has like this periphery effect in the world like it's it's extremely surreal in a way that that slasher movies like this are not generally at least from this era aside from like Nightmare on Elm Street which is literal dreams yeah so, which was something I loved so much about it like the thing has a pretty uh, like straightforward plotline you know like research station in Antarctica thing gets loose you don't know who thing is who the, right. the, the creature is but the the visuals are what what sell that film for this this movie you get the same that same sort of uh like live effects with the grisly detail but but also that cerebral setting as well and right. like that that dream-like mentality and uh and direction style certainly with the with the the editing style and how it's you know structured together i think the 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 story itself is pretty simple in itself you know there's not a lot of subtext to be gleaned by it you know there's that addiction metaphor 
but outside of that, it's pretty straightforward. But it's forward. but it's it's like Cleveland said, it's in the way it's presented. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. In the it, way that it's shot and directed and edited. Across the board, this film is technically proficient. The writing is technically proficient. All the little details, what characters say to each other, they have hints uh, towards other factors. Exposition is very rarely directly delivered in this movie, which was such a fresh breath of air for There's horror. no exposition dumps. It all feels natural. Yeah. It feels like natural mm-hmm. conversation. And and just, oh, God, I wish that was more common. It's it's It was so nice. The writing, is it's it's technically proficient. Like, it's not necessarily that deep or complex. Uh, the storyline is fairly simple. We were able to summarize it pretty quickly. But thematically, that that also helps with its cohesion as well, and allows the film to just go into the technicality. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think the the editing is also pretty dreamlike in a lot of ways, to the extent that to a layman or somebody who's not particularly invested, I would say that the editing almost comes across as bad at times. Just because it's kind of almost art house, it's kind of dis. The editing is kind of disjointed a little bit, yeah, but like, I, but in a in a way that I like a well, lot. Well, intent. I w- I would say yeah, that if you're not paying a hundred percent attention to this movie, I could see people getting confused by some I mean, shit, some I, of the things that happen. Sometimes. At the very beginning, like uh, leading up to the sequence that we're describing, uh, I I was I was a little unsure about it like i think i was asking a couple of questions like what 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 the fuck like why, why do they transition the here? the flashbacks with julia are yeah. are there, there's they're they're abrupt they're intercut in a way that the only thing that tells you that's a flashback really is that she has a different hairstyle and yeah, they're she, in a different location she looks very much the same outside of yeah. slightly and different they, hair they, right. they don't use any filters or hardly anything to show like those transitions between right. flashbacks but i kind of loved that too because it makes the house sort of feel eternal yes like and there's a timelessness to it and it, it does enhance the dreamlike quality of it i agree and that's and that's to, that's to my point is that if, if you don't really know what to expect and you come into you're like oh that's jarring that's weird is that is that a mistake but then as like the film goes and there it, it becomes it justifies itself well it becomes it becomes stylistic the mm-hmm. way that it's edited it, it, it becomes obviously intentional yeah. you know and and it's supposed to be confused it's it's there. off it's off-putting but I think in a way that lets you get into the headspace of the characters more especially julia who i think is very much the main character of a good chunk of this movie yeah and how putting because the characters are off-putting and she herself is very conflicted you know it's like she knows better than to be helping frank but she is so addicted to the idea of him that she, she can't help herself. That she can't yeah. help herself and that she's willing to commit murder for him, you yeah. know? That's the thing I love about the characterization of Julia is she is definitely a miserable, kind of shitty person. But at the same time, I would say she is quite sympathetic for a lot of sure you know and 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 under she's very very drawing and she's under she's understandable as well Well, also early on it's kind of hard to tell whether or not she has a choice or, or whether or not she is choosing to do this for frank but i mean also you you even you even look at like 
the comparison between Frank and Larry, and Frank is everything that Larry isn't. Yeah, they're you know, perfect foils. They're, they're perfect mm. foils, and that's what that's why it works so well that she becomes so enamored of Frank because Larry is is so normal and boring and and like we said, pathetic, and he faints at the sight of blood, and you know he's he's just so vanilla and milk. milk. Toast, toast yeah but he's a but he's a good nice guy and he's trying his best whereas like frank is a total like sleazy scumbag you know like the first time they have sex they do it at fuck and he whips out his switchblade and they bang at knife point but he's tall and he's handsome and and he's dangerous you know so it's like he's literally everything that larry is not and it makes sense that she's drawn to him because of that because she's bored with larry you know so like despite the fact that she is a miserable piece of shit you understand why and that's good character writing you know um i feel like we've we've gone way off the the scene that we were gonna it's talk cool. about yeah, we're, we're ready to get back to it but, but uh, i'm glad we did though i think that was a nice tangent yeah to go no there, it's, it's important things that i think needs to be discussed mm-hmm. um but yeah so larry gashes the fuck out of his hand and he goes into the room uh, like a nail on the wall. Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a nail coming out of the the banister on the staircase. Um, and he goes into the the room to find Julia, and he's just dripping blood everywhere. And as soon as they leave to go take him to the hospital, and he's being just such a poos. <laughs> well, he is. Yeah, he's like he's like I'm gonna pass out. I'm gonna faint. You know me and blood. She's like, No, you're not. Like, we'll let's get Kirsty to drive you to the hospital. This needs stitches. And as soon as they leave, the the way they start this whole scene is great too, where you just see like this weird sort of like milky fluid like bubbling up from yeah the before yeah. that even the like, blood when, is sucked into the oh yeah you floor. see the when yeah the you see the blood yeah, like, sucked when, down when into the, the floorboards like, yeah when like the blood first hits the floorboards you see it drop down and you see, like the camera pans underneath the floorboards like following the dropping blood and there's like something fleshy it's like a it's like, like a, a weird heart, heart thing. Yeah, yeah it's like and, beating and yeah then you see the this milky fluid like seeping up from the floorboard and then these two arms just like erupt out of the floor yeah well and they're barely arms at that point either they're yeah just it's just like, like tendrils it's just, yeah it's just like bone and and nerve endings and you get this really protracted scene of frank like sort of coming back together and like the nerves and muscles like growing in Just on his pooling bones. Up from the blood. Yeah, you get yeah, these like ex- the- Oh, go ahead. Yeah, the, the the all the bones and blood like just like kind of cohese together and it just yeah becomes. It looks like it looks like like time lapse footage of like fungus growing yeah. and shit like There's that. All these extended like reverse shots. Yeah, where you see things start to form and get more weight to them. Yeah, and I think it's so cool, especially you know early on. 
Frank's form looks so alien. Right. You know, well, like, yeah, because you like the first thing you get is the arms, and then it's got like a spine with like a couple of ribs, and you see the head forming on its own on the floor, and the spine is sort of like moving around. It's got these little tendrils coming off of it, and it bends down to connect with the skull. And it this scene goes on for like five minutes, yeah. and it's disgusting. And I think I think the first time you really really feel that it's human is when you see the spine connect to the brain yeah because you see you know the texture of the brain and it's so evocative and you're like oh this is what what's happening here and i i love yeah exactly like you see the brain forming and because at first you're absolutely right it does look very alien you're like what the fuck is this thing but then it gradually starts to take human form and when the i i love the way the scene ends too because when the 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 neck and the spine reconnect with the head and it just rears back and screams like that is such like a perfect way to to end that because that's when you fully see that like it's a human shape forming and that process is probably not very comfortable for that man Mm -hmm. like it's like a it's like a birthing scream it's it's so visceral and just nasty I love that scene so much. It's one of my favorite scenes in in horror in general, I think. Yeah, it's just incredibly effective. And and just so surprisingly effective too. Like with with live puppetry, like rarely can you afford to to hang the camera on those shots for so right. long. Right. And but the and flesh you can is so convincing. You can tell it's a lot of like revert like Ben was saying, like reverse shots and stuff mm-hmm. where they probably had something that they were melting off camera with like a torch or something and it was disintegrating and then run the the film in reverse to make it build itself. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's so well done and it's I, I think that it's aged really well. Like you can, yeah. you can obviously tell that it's like it's a, it's an effect. But yeah, at least in, you could touch it. In exactly in the you same know, way like that like in the same way with the the effects in the thing, you know, it's it's tangible and you can tell how much work went into it. I was looking at on IMDb and like the 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 makeup and special effects team for this movie was like fifteen people unsurprisingly yeah i mean like i can't imagine how long the the actor who played frank had to sit in the uh makeup oh, chair man. every day they oh, shot. Man. that yeah that's great too like when you finally see him resurrected for the first time when when julia first discovers him in the room and he can't even walk he's dragging himself across the floor and he's just like bones and nerve endings and like fat it looks like he's really gross he looks like a like a fucking ghoul looks like the crypt keeper it's cool too because like you can you can tell in his the acting is great like the the voice acting is awesome too for him because you can tell that like he's in pain but he's also just come back from a hell dimension so there's a there's a jaded quality and it's a relief to (laughs) it as well yeah Yeah. Yeah. almost it's almost comical like if it wasn't for the circumstances and i i just Julia, you you gotta help me out. <laughs> like, I know, and also he's just like, don't look at me. Yeah, like, just, 
And how every time she brings somebody back and kills them and he does whatever he does, which we never really see distinctly. Yeah, we get a couple shots of him, like, putting his hands... His fingers, like, under people's mm. flesh and he's, like, absorbing something which, from them. Which is one of the, the, the few complaints I think I also had uh, about the film was the foley was really weird for that because it just sounds like a straw being slurped. And it kind of... It took me out of it a little bit. <laughs> like, I would... Just, just make it a, sound a little bit more uh, alien. Yeah, I uh, guess he, he's he's sucking, sucking, and sucking. I know that's what he's doing, <laughs> but it just it, it it was it felt very cartoon almost. But to I me. like. But my my point was, I love that the every every movie. time he does that, we see him and he looks slightly more whole. Yeah, and so there's just there's a a progression of of his appearance throughout the film, and he looks more and more like like a just like a skinned person with just like exposed muscle tissue and yeah, and uh, yeah, flayed man and and blood veins and stuff. And it's great. I love. Eventually, he decides to start wearing clothes and he's just wearing like this he looks like fucking tony montana with like this suit with with a shirt that's like unbuttoned part of the way but the the shirt is just like soaking up blood because <laughs> yeah. he, he doesn't have any As skin things go on he just is wet and he just and gets wetter, wetter and wetter and, and just consistently like every time you see him after he's killed someone else like you get the shots really linger and you can see all of it even then they do a great job of like with shadow play like there are a number of times especially earlier on like yeah. where he's just like hiding in the in the dark but um it's never used as an excuse like you see him full on so oh often yeah as many well. times and every time it's just it's so impressive like i did a lot of uh like in my my classical studies i did a lot of ecrige like studies which is you know french for flayed man and like look like studying musculature and like and facial anatomy yeah. and they they really knocked it out of the park like you can you can see like where all the connections are like on like the, the at the temples right um uh, and it just they built it around his face and it the fact that it functions too, like when he's speaking, is just it's just out of this world. Like you see well, little muscles twitching. And stuff. I mean, it functions to the to the extent that they're able to ADR over it. None of none of Frank's dialogue in this well, movie. Well, is, no, no, I'm is, saying like it, it functions at like his when his mouth moves, like the individual. Oh muscles yeah, sure, and sure, sure, sure. You know, are all like pulling like that. That's awesome. Like, yeah, that, that was just fantastic. Okay, yeah. no, I get what you're I, saying. I love mm. the use of having Frank you know, constantly being in the corners or being, you know, hiding behind the stairs early on. House. Yeah. You know, it it really makes him seem more imposing in a lot of ways because even if he's not present in the scene, he's still there. He's haunting. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Like, in, in, in the way a bad memory does, which is cool. Frank has such a neat presence. And, again, all of that really surprised me because I'd never heard about him. Right, ever. well, exactly. I'd, I'd heard so much about Hellraiser. You go into it expecting Pinhead to be the antagonist. Yeah. I mean, the, the movie poster, the cover of the original Hellraiser is Pinhead holding the, the box. Uh, so it's like, yeah, you expect that, and then you watch the movie, and Pinhead is in like the the Cenobites are in like three scenes, you know, like at the very beginning, then in the hospital when Kersey opens the box, and then at the very end when yep. they come for Frank at the house. Like, and honestly, I I love that. Uh, no, I'm totally yeah, fine with it as well. I, I, I loved. Uh, they they were uh, I, mysterious. I, yeah, exactly. I was, I was reading up a little bit this uh, earlier today about the details on that stuff, and apparently. The original poster for Hellraiser was supposed to have Frank 
you know, skinless and flayed. Um, but the sensors, yeah. sensors oh, were yeah. not having that. No. So they had to mix it up. I think it's for the best. I mean, Pinhead is so iconic. Anyway. Well, that's the thing. Like, the, the series has become about the Cenobites, you know? I've made it up through Hellraiser 6 uh, about three times. I've I've tried to watch through all of them, and 6 is always the one where I can no longer go any farther. I think I've seen more of the Hellraiser franchise than any other horror franchise except for Saw, which I've seen all of. But I have seen the most Hellraiser movies, they get and they get silly. really bad. They, they get, get really silly bad. after a while yeah. and unfun very quickly well yeah the 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 first few sequels are are funny bad yeah they're pretty campy but then they get really bleak and like dour and just so unfun yeah and i'm sure we'll do an episode on at least some of the sequels i would at least like to do an episode on hellraiser 2 because i do like hellraiser 2 yeah um, I and I think that Hellraiser two is a pretty be, solid film. I'd be okay film. doing three just for that CD spewing Cenobite. Yeah, he's pretty good. <laughs> Let's talk about the Cenobites a little more. Sure, that was a pretty good segue. I think the design of all of them is extremely interesting. Iconic, yeah, obviously. iconic. You know, you have actually iconic, iconic. Well, I mean, yeah. Pinhead <laughs> is obviously the most iconic one with you know his face just covered with nails, but the uh, other ones. Pins. No, they're nails, actually. They, they, are, they are nails. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the other ones, you know, in my opinion, aren't quite as imposing. They're still iconic in a lot of ways. But, like, for example, you have Butterball. The, the Butterball is the funniest looking because he just looks like a thumb He's wearing, a sun, wearing sunglasses. Cool Glasses, um, I, yeah. I think I think the Chatterer is pretty creepy. Yeah, you know, like the Chatterer gives me hardcore Silent Hill vibes. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that one's really yeah, well done. Because like the the flesh face. Yeah. You have the the lady, the the credited Cenobite. as female female Cenobite. Cenobite. They all have names except for her. Like yeah. yeah, like why why is she just female? She's Cenobite? the only. She's it's the only. I know she's the only one. Other great than, design, great character, but yeah, she's the only I one other than Pinhead who has lines. Like, the original name was like Vagneck or something like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a shame because she is she's the only one other than Pinhead who has lines who actually yeah. speaks. Right. So it's like you'd think they would give her a name. Yeah. Maybe her original name was, like, Clitobite. Clitobite. But, I mean, also, like, nowhere in the series, as far as I know, at least the ones I've seen, are any of the Cenobites named on camera. Well, they shouldn't be. I mean, it makes more sense. Well, and, you know, outside of Pinhead, I would say most of the other Cenobites are really a rotating cast of characters. I mean, I think the the four main ones that are established in in Hellraiser... But you get a lot of new introductions. You get get new ones throughout the series, yes. The other ones become more central. But these central four that are established in this one are... In most of the sequels, yeah, they're pretty consistently yeah. in them, but they're they're rotating in like how much screen time they get versus sure. new ones and sure. whatnot. I mean, it's all about Pinhead for the most part. I, an underrated aspect of Pinhead's design that I don't think anybody talks about enough is uh, his flayed nipples. Y'all notice that? He's just got 
flayed nipples <laughs> and and nobody talks about it and it's it's really good i think um, <laughs> uh, also you. uh doug bradley is amazing as pinhead um he's really iconic he's i would say equally important to making the pinhead character iconic as uh robert england is for freddy krueger yeah it's really interesting because i find pinhead doug bradley's portrayal of pinhead particularly very imposing yes which is interesting because i don't think the cenobites in this movie are particularly imposing so there's a weird butting of heads with that but it works for the well, most yeah, part. I in think this so because like, I, I, I really liked again like that the, the Cenobites weren't as imposing as I thought they were going to be. Like, and I I liked that about them. Yeah, I agree, and I just think I think Doug Bradley brings such an imposing force. Well, I think I think what's especially in this movie, what is so imposing about the Cenobites is the implied threat. They don't do very much in this movie, mm-hmm. but I I think that is honestly to their credit because you get the impression that the reason that they aren't more dangerous i guess at least to these people is that they can't be bothered to be oh yeah that they're that they're that they're above it you Mm. know that they're they're above the games that mortals play you know like they they only show up when the box is open. yeah they really feel like ascended beings yes as you described them, they are BDSM angels. Yeah, and yeah. and I think it's cool uh, because you get the vibe that like potentially some of the Cenobites might have at one point just been people who were whisked away and just through like almost like just flesh horrible training. They that is exactly what Cenobites. happened to the Cenobites. Really? Yeah, oh, cool. you nailed it. Yeah. Well, clearly the world building's effective. Like I was yeah. able to guess that or kind of infer that, and that's awesome. Like that's that's really cool to me. Like the idea of them whisking people away and sort of it's it's fey. It's very like you the whisking them away, like whisking people away and taking them to their realm. And it's just instead of the fairyland, it's BDSM hell, but right. um or heaven to some. But uh, I really love the the mysticism. Really I have, I have a minor plot point that I want you guys to clarify for me because I was a little confused. So the the Cenobites, you know, are you know like angels of pain. They have, you know, superhuman, you know, powers on right. Earth. Why were they not able to find Frank on their own? Why did they need the help of Kirsty to, to guide them? Because through? until she told him that, uh, until she told them that he had escaped, they didn't even know. Which gives the the implication that they're presiding over a vast realm of pain, and that they didn't even realize that Frank was gone because yeah, they have the yeah, exactly like they he slipped under their nose, and so that's why when she tells him tells Pinhead that Frank escaped, he's just like impossible. People don't escape, yeah. right? Exactly. Yeah, so, like, yeah. and I think that's what that's what makes them scary too is exact it ties back into what i was saying is that this is all like below them it's it's beneath them it's yeah yeah i definitely agree with that and i think it's 
an interesting point to make. But they are limited in what they can do in our realm by the box. That's true. That's true. That's yeah. probably the biggest reason. And that's a good narrative reason, or, or enough narrative reason. Right. I well, suppose. I mean, she, in the final scene, when the house is coming down and the Cenobites show up and take Frank, which is a, a an excellently gross and uh, visceral scene. Yeah, it kind but of she, wraps it all together with the, the opening scene. Right. In a lot they of do the same thing in a lot of ways. They They hook him and just pull him apart. But this time um, it doesn't cut away. Right. This time we see all of it. Mm. But that's why Kirsty is able to banish them with the box, because she has the box. And that's what keeps them from taking her. Which I I know you you said is you think it's it's a little bit anticlimactic and you think downplays the threat of yeah, them. I, it's very campy how they do it with the uh you know drawn on Effects. I loved it. I like it too. I think it's kind of charming. It is kind of anticlimactic just because, you know, like I was hoping for a little more ambiguity with Kirstie's story after she opened the box. You know, I almost felt like it should have been more of a Pandora's box type of thing where once it has been opened, it can't be really closed. And it wrapped up a little too cleanly in that respect, at least with this one. Well, I think I know, usually they... it can't be closed, but she made a deal with them. I don't know. Well, no, the the box the box can be closed. I mean, we see the 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 ways that it shifts and becomes different shapes, and she banishes each <coughs> one of the Cenobites mm-hmm. by closing by up. closing a piece and, and of if, it. If you the know? box can't be closed when it's open, then there is no tension. Right, you know, once the box has been opened, and also, I mean, it, it makes it makes the box important also to the Cenobites because the box is is their tie to the real world, and the only way that they are able to access the real world is through somebody opening the box. So it would make sense that by closing the box, that also closes the door that allows them access to the real world. Mm-hmm. And also, because I, I think it needs to be something like that, because they are sort of all-powerful and there wouldn't really be a way to defeat them otherwise they can't they can't be killed they can't die you have to seal them out yeah and i i think too that they kind of let themselves be sealed like, yeah i think they like, just don't give a shit i think end. that's like, really like, it I, I got I the vibe, like, like, like you see like chatterbox like like kind of going going for her and he's going really slowly but you get the impression like he's kind of fucking around like you know you get the vibe he's just like he's like playing with his food and he and he doesn't really care that he's very much with the Cenob- I, I, I it's like very that. much what the Cenobites do is I, they uh, they're just kind of indifferent because they're not there to like their their yeah. purpose isn't to be jason and to like to to kill the person it's to like torture and play and you know kind of dick around and stuff right and uh, because they're like Faye, and that's that. I that's cool to me. The the after all, the best way to combat addiction is to store it all away in a tiny box. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> just never let it out. Just just stuff just stuff that shit down and yeah. put it away. Um, no, I just felt it was a little anticlimactic, and maybe it's just because it wasn't given quite as much screen time as I was hoping for. Um, just because it was so quick for her to get rid of them. Like, it, they never really felt like a threat to her. Which, I mean, yes, in a way, it does feel like they're playing with her. But at the same time... But also, you know, they're they're the, they're not, they're not like we said, they're not the primary antagonist yeah. of and the And I think film. that the pacing was still very effective for the climax because there's so much 
so much of the climax before this, the Cenobites show up with Frank. Right. Like, that, that whole sequence with yeah. him, like, with her, like, with Frank, like, disguised it, fly, I, as her dad, and that, and him chasing which her Which is down, fantastic. And all those interactions, like, that, that's a part of the climax But, you know, well. why even have them go after her at all? Well, you they're, know? they're there for, they're there for Frank, and they get him, and they try to take her back, but I don't think they particularly care too much. It's like, yeah, well, we're it already just, here, it let's just, It's like, around. it's like, we're here, we might as well, we might as well get her while we can, and then she closes the box yeah, and seals I the mean, out. my only point is, you know, like, I feel like that's kind of a shoehorn threat, and it is, it doesn't ever feel like that legitimate of a threat to begin with, so I don't know why it's really in it feels there. legit to me like they're they're pretty powerful beings yeah no i, I that's, mean that's but kinda... they're so easily put back into the box and like you said you know they're playing with their food you know like they're not really ever a threat to her because they because that. they choose not to be which i think is effective world building that that if they i I kind of i kind of agree like it prevents them from being just like snidely whiplash twiddle their mustache like monster villains like and lets them be something that's a little bit more relatable a little bit more a little more tangible i feel like Um, we've mentioned snidely whiplash on like the last four episodes of this podcast yeah 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 he's a He's a iconic character. Um, but I don't know if I agree, though, because I think it kind of hits the middle ground between having them be truly a force that's beyond human affairs and are mainly just focused on ensuring the, the suffering that was entailed and having them as a truly like Pandora's box once it, it's opened it can never truly be closed type of thing. I think it's just a different thing though, like a Pandora's box. Like it's that could also be effective, but I think that this is, you know, for this for this film. You know, I feel like they could have uh done what you were saying where they were playing, you know, with their prey a little bit more if it gave it a little more time, I suppose. Yeah, but um, like because... giving more time to the Cenobites can take away like some of their their mystery, like their allure. Yeah, I I think like, I... this way they, their their neutrality is maintained, but also still like their, their. But I think you do take away from the allure with the screen time you give them because they don't feel like a threat. You know, like almost every one of them, but one are just banished super easily by closing the box, and the other one, Butterball, just gets crushed by the yeah, floor falling like, on right top before, of him. Yeah, but, like, in the scene beforehand, like, they, they with, like, a snap of their fingers, they, they rip someone to shreds, like, in the room. Yeah, yeah and we that's see why what they're, they're like, capable of. And then, like, of whisk with... them into another dimension. Like, we see their power. Yeah, we, we see, see what, what they're, they're capable of. of. Like, they Frank, can, like, step yeah. in and out. Yeah, of and realities. that's why it undercuts it with the, the, the way the ending is right now, because I feel like it undercuts the mysticism and the otherworldly power because they feel very beatable with the ending scene in a way because they i think because they let themselves I, that's what it feels like to me because we see their power we see what they're capable of and if they wanted to take kirsty if they really wanted to take kirsty they would and they could. They get caught up toying with her, and give it gives her time to close the box and banish them. It's it's their own it's their own despondence that gets them banished in the end. Like I don't think it it 
it undercuts what they're capable of. And ultimately, like, this first Hellraiser is not about the Cenobites. It's about, oh, yeah, Fra- it's about Frank and Julia. Definitely. I just feel like it's a weird character motivation as a whole, and I don't 100% think it's the most strongly done part of the movie, but ultimately it's a pretty minor gripe. Like, yeah, sure. It's just a couple minutes of the movie. Um, I want to talk about one other thing besides the Cenobites, though. We have that, like, scorpion monster. That oh, shows yeah. up several times through the movie. What did you all think about that? I thought it was really cool, uh, but it was a little tainted uh, because in the middle of it, my bad. My buddies who had seen the movie before noticed something that I wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah, it was the first time I noticed it, and when it's chasing her in the hallway, you can see the the dolly cart that it's attached to behind it. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have pointed that out. <laughs> it was just because there was I've seen. No, this no, no. Th- if you see that, like you're gonna say well, it. It's, like, and also, like that's the thing. Like it. I've seen this movie several times. I've never noticed it before. It and, and then this really time I and then this away. time I caught it and I was like, "Ooh, the cart! You can see it!" <laughs> so that was just kind of a. It is very funny. It like, was kind of a snap thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I I like I love, I, I love how it like its its legs are 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 its arms are its arms and it like its its head is like suspended lower beneath it for the time for the effects. I think it was fine. I would have I would have liked it if the the body itself like. Had a little bit of undulation to it, where the yeah, head could maintain its the movement. Stillness. Its Sorry. movement is a little artificial and yeah. hasn't maybe hasn't aged super well. I love the design, and I I like that we see it when Kersey first opens the box, and that that passageway into the Cenobites realm is revealed, and that thing is sort of the gatekeeper. It implies. It, I think it gives you just enough insight into what is possible in that realm without revealing too much that it it makes that seem horrifying especially considering you know that that's where frank escaped from and at the end that that's where he goes back to and that's what kirsty and her boyfriend narrowly avoid going to mm-hmm. it's like if that thing is is just a gatekeeper like what what really exists what's after in, the gate yeah like yeah. what exists in that realm like because it, it does it does paint like a full picture of uh, what their realm looks like. Yeah. Like you, you, and really what makes you want to see more of it. Like I, I, I definitely do. And you say that Hellraiser 2 has. Hell, a lot, a big chunk of Hellraiser 2 takes place in the Cenobites oh, yeah. realm. I would love yeah. to see that. I, I, uh, I would love to see more. You know, I, I really like the design of that monster. I, I feel like it's kind of put in the movie in a, in a lot of scenes to just create a threat where there usually isn't one. You know, you get the hospital sequence where it's chasing Kirsty down the down the otherworldly hallway. Sure. Or uh, even in the final scene where the, uh, the Cenobites aren't really that much of a threat, they insert that to become a threat in the scene. And in a way, like, I appreciate that it makes for a, a thrilling set piece, but I think it muddies some of that a little bit. I don't. I think uh, it it helps reinforce what I was saying earlier about the the cube sort of acting as a beacon, and it like has rippling effects. We see like the homeless character sort of like like in the periphery. We get the the editing itself feels very dreamlike. You get a sense that maybe some of the the characters in that world um, or in the real world are starting to kind of be pulled into it. The house itself just gets ripped into the dimension. Um, there are like the, the physical world sort of starts to break down around this cube. 
I loved that. And I, th- and I thought that sequence really brought that and that's, home for me. It's sort of, and that's sort of a, an ongoing theme throughout the sequels as well. Like, at least the sixth one, which is my least favorite. Like I said, it's the one that has made me unable to continue watching the rest. The twist at the end is that the main character has been dead the whole time, and the entire world that he exists in is in hell, and it's just the Cenobites toying with him. So it there's very much that that I yeah well it it's done really stupidly in that movie but it is you're you know you're on to something that that is part of the rules of the cube and the Cenobites is that the the cube acts as a conduit and that the the worlds sort of bleed together around it yeah. I I just find that that the the monster there kind of funny from a structural point because uh where i see you know the cenobites is very cerebral in a lot of ways and the the frank story very mature in a lot of ways that scorpion monster feels like you know like a classic movie monster well yeah and i think in a way it is it's it's something from the cenobites realm that has come through with them and it is it it is bestial and mindless and i think Um, there's a there's a comparative like with the cenobites that makes the cenobites more powerful because of it like and it's it's their beast masters you know in that sense like sure the scorpion monster was also probably a person at one point you know that just got it looks vaguely it looks vaguely humanoid Mm -hmm. yeah and I mean, you. I guess you could consider it somewhat of a cop out, but the, you know, the, the benefit of having this kind of story where you're dealing with alternate hell dimensions yeah, is that is is anything is possible, yeah. and you can you can choose to do what you want with that. You're playing with with Play-Doh. You know, you can make whatever the fuck you want, and whether it's good or bad depends entirely on what you do with those materials. And inherently, at the end of the day, well, rule of cool, and, and it fucking wins out in this movie. And, uh, like, you know, in a structural way, it makes a lot of sense. You know, like, it is a threat in a lot of sections where there would be less immediate threat and more of a an undertext, or a, you know, like... Yeah. Undertone of threat. Well, I think it also, that that beast also adds to the idea that the the Cenobites just ultimately in the end can't be bothered. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like they, they're, they're too powerful to really give a shit and they let themselves be banished. But that beast has to, you know, becomes a legitimate threat because it's not smart enough to think like that. It is a beast. It just wants to kill yeah. what it sees in front like, of and it. And I think it's cool that like, what's the daughter's name? Uh, Kirsty. Kirsty is never like chased by the Cenobites. She runs into another room and the Cenobites are there. Right. Meanwhile, this creature does chase them. It's bestial, right. but, but they are about that. They don't, they don't chase. They don't, they don't, they only No, walk. they're, they're very, they're very lordly. Yeah. Um, extremely. And, yeah. uh, that was, that was cool. No, this, uh, this film, uh, and that sequence too, with the beast, the beast, um, and, uh, the, the wall opening up to reveal that chamber. I think during the movie, I think I, I stopped for a, for a second and said, um, don't go that way. <laughs> right. Don't go that way. You know, like, uh, in the labyrinth. Cause this, this film really, like, to me is like Jim Henson's labyrinth on like bad mescaline. Like it's just. And you said whoa. that while we were watching the movie and my response is the same. Just wait till you see Hellraiser 2, my man. Oh yeah. Just wait until I you see that. Hellraiser yeah. 2. I want that. Cause, yeah. cause the labyrinth is still like 
like one of my all time because the films. the Cenobites realm is BDSM labyrinth. Oh and man, is, I'm okay with that. Yeah, just just you wait, my man. Cool, fucking um, awesome. Yeah, well let's let's talk about the the very ending. Yeah, just that's to, what I wanted to talk about just, as well. Yeah, because it's yeah. maybe the most bizarre thing in the movie. Yeah. Like, yeah. I've had some time to think about it. It's not great, but like it is justifiable in the world. Like, but anyway. Okay, I want to. I want to hear you justify it. I find it baffling. Kirsty throws the the box into a fire in the middle of a. I, I assume. I assume it's the lot where her house used to be. See, yeah, it could it didn't be. But seem like it though. It, it seems like an abandoned lot with a couple of like random fires. Yeah. Yeah. Well. It's it's a lot, and there's some fires, and she throws the box into yeah, yeah. into the but fire. It, yeah, it could have also just been like just in like outer city somewhere, like where like homeless people hang out, and, like they're just doing some burnings, which I kind of would prefer because it's like the only like poor set design thing in the movie. Like if if it is that, which I think is why it's ambiguous. It's like we don't have the budget to do like a it dilapidated is, house. So yeah, we'll it just, is uh, a it is a lot with some some fires burning on the lot. And she throws the box into the fire, and the spooky homeless man who we've seen sort of following her a couple of times mm. walks up, picks up the box out of the fire. He himself catches on fire. Fully. St- fully, stands there burning for a second, holding the box, and then just inexplicably becomes a bone dragon. Um, and <laughs> fucking metal. And f- it's extremely metal, and it flies off into the night shrieking and then we see the box back on that table no 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 there's a weird transitory shot where like though their expression with the fire behind them of what the fuck just happened with that dragon is in like windowed by the box like with them inside yeah well it's it's just like it's just like how the opening credits came out of the box at the beginning that's i I saw that's an 80s that's an 80s thing that's just a really trapped in the box no 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 that's that's an that's an 80s thing but we see the box back on the table in the bizarre um, yeah. with the the same weird creepy man selling it to yeah. somebody so else in the world okay so first off yes it and i, I don't think it's done well even with the, <laughs> the, even with the, the justification i'm about to try and give it it's just it's so random it's just like what bone dragon all right yes yeah um but again it, it reinforces baffling. for me that the uh they're sort of part of like a fey realm and that the hobo bone dragon Hobone Dragon, uh, the sure. character, is is an agent of this, the Senate. Is that Hobo Johnson that these kids have been talking about lately? Is that him? Who? Hobo Johnson? I don't know who that is. Exactly. Okay. Continue. All right. Sorry, forgive me for being an old man. Um, but anyway, this 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 uh, Hobone Dragon uh, character sort of I think I think he's almost like an emissary for them like he yeah, able to walk in this world that's and the it's of his job to get too. the cube back to wherever it needs to be yeah so he's like messenger bone dragon man uh, yeah, no, that's that's the impression that I get too. It comes out of nowhere. It's yeah, just it's, not it's so done left field. Well, in this movie, well, like I said, I, I agree. Yeah, like it's, like, it's very left field. It's like, it's baffling <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, but also no, it, it is it is baffling. It's a good way to describe it. Like you can, I think, in the world, create a justification for it. It doesn't change the fact that it comes completely out of left field and is incredibly strange and weird. Uh, but also, it's like the last thirty seconds of the whole I movie. Think, I think if so... it had been about a minute or two longer, and the hobo had said anything, 
you've done well or I've come for the cube or some shit. I don't like, know about that. I don't know. I, I, something less cliche than what I'm suggesting, but but just something to kind of like uh, help give him some justification. I don't know. See, in a funny way. But I think that, the sequence should have been longer just so we could breathe the, a little bit. That scene where he jumps into the fire mirrors a certain scene from the movie we'll watch next week, uh, Candyman. Um, there's a scene that has a lot of connections to that. So I'm going to save too much information on that until next okay, week. Okay, sure. Yeah, it's it's weird, and I don't know if I would go so far as to say it's bad, but it, it's just baffling and and bizarre. I think it's because it it's a jump cut. Like, but he it just is, goes from Flaming Hobo to dragon. to dragon. There's no transformation. And yeah. Well, the film has one of the best transformations in it, like in an earlier sequence. It it's, does. It's it weird. feels It feels a bit like an afterthought in comparison to the rest of the movie. It's, it's somewhat of an awkward bookend. But like I said, it is just like the last 30 seconds of the movie. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, I don't even really have a problem with it. In fact, that I had forgotten all about the Bone Dragon in between the last time I watched this movie and we watched it now. So it obviously doesn't do much to hamper my enjoyment of the movie. Never forget about the Bone Dragon. Yeah, how how could I forget about the Bone Dragon? Literally, Mr. Bone. Uh, you know, I want to get off of Mr. Bone's wild ride. I want to get off of Mr. Um, Bone Dragon's uh, wild ride. Uh, you know, I've realized there's been a weird trend in the past, like, three or four movies we've seen where the ending has been very abrupt and strange. You're right. Yeah, yeah. You're absolutely, absolutely right. Like, that's been a weird trend. Like, Frenzy was very abrupt. It just cut to the suitcase. This film, uh, what was it? Uh, Glass. Glass was like At just a very abrupt ending. Unbreakable. 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 Split, not so much. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there have been a lot of weird There's another one, though. Isn't abrupt there, like, endings. Isn't there another film we watched um, recently that had... That ended very quickly. Uh, well, before that, we had The Endless and Summer of 84 and Apostle. Apostle had a kind of an abrupt ending. Just a weird ending. Um, uh, Apostle did have breathing room at the end, but it was yeah. dumb. Yeah. No, you're. That's. But yeah, those past couple of movies. True, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. We're, we're three for three right now, and just weird endings yeah. at the very least. Um, Y'all want to raid? Yeah. I'm, mine oh, as yeah. well. Okay. Um, I guess I'll start. Uh, I I won't reiterate too much, but uh, I think this is this film is a masterpiece. Um, it, it's still one of my favorite horror movies of all time, even after this most recent viewing. Uh, I pretty much love everything about it. I can see why some people could have problems with it, but I do not. So for me, it's a perfect film. Five out of five pods. Yeah, I think this is a fantastic movie. Some of the strongest effects. In all of movie history, particularly practical effects, uh, you know, horror-driven practical effects, the subtext and the, the narrative of this movie is a little simple, uh, but it's done in such an evocative way um, that you don't even mind it too much, and the acting is very strong. Um, I really enjoy... Um, the storyline of Frank, I think that's just excellently done. I think the Cenobites are interesting and iconic. Um, I have a few minor gripes about, you know, the uh, Kirstie storyline and the ending of this movie. But really, this movie is carried by its incredible effects work um, to the point where not that stuff doesn't bother me all that much in the scheme of things. I'm going to give this a four and a half out of five. It is near perfect, but I do have a couple minor gripes uh, nonetheless. 
Yeah, um, no film is truly perfect. Um, uh, but this film is perfect for me. Five out of five. Well, that will give Hellraiser an average of 4.8 out of five pods. Extremely strong. I am going to take us to a place where we haven't been in a in a minute, boys. We're, we're entering the Metacritic Corner. What time is it? Metacritic Corner. What time is it? Metacritic Corner. I like how we have a we have two themes for Metacritic yeah, Corner. It's great. It's great. Keep them both. Keep them both. <laughs> no, we totally are. Um, so this, I did pull this review off of Metacritic, but it's not from a user because there are no bad user reviews of Hellraiser. However, I did find a an abysmally bad review from the one, the only. Roger Ebert. Oh yeah, he hates this movie. He hated this movie. And I know I'm that gonna... name. Remind me again. <laughs> okay, so this review was written on September 18th, or was published on September 18th, 1987. And it starts with a uh, blurb from Stephen King. I have seen the future of the horror genre, and his name is Clive Barker. Now there's a blurb Stephen King should have written under one of his pen names. He may have seen the future of the horror genre, but he has almost certainly not seen Hellraiser, which is a dreary piece of goods as has masqueraded as horror in many a long, cold night. This is one of those movies you sit through with mounting dread as the fear grows inside of you that it will indeed turn out to be feature length. The story begins with the plight of Frank, a hapless explorer into unknown realms of existence, who buys a magic box from a magician. After the sides of the box are manipulated just so, Frank is hurtled into the sphere of the Cenobites, strange creatures that who introduce him to unbearable pleasure and unspeakable pain. Then Frank apparently is reduced to some kind of residue in the flooring of an old house. <laughs> The house is purchased by the Cottons, Larry and Julia, who move in with their daughter, Kirsty. This is some house. The kitchen sink is full of maggots devouring rotting flesh. Isn't the real estate agent supposed to tidy up details like that? <laughs> but the Cottons buy the house anyway, maybe because there is no love in their marriage, and so this cheerless house seems like the ideal venue for decades of silent suffering and wordless like blame. They weren't just, like, buying I it. know, I know. He, he obviously wasn't paying attention yeah roger then larry cuts himself and his blood soaks into the floorboards awakening the creature that awaits there the creature turns out to be his brother who once had an affair with julia and hopes to have another just as soon as he can cannibalize enough innocent victims to put flesh back on his bones which look like the handicraft of a special effects designer as indeed they are Frank sends Julia out to singles bars to pick up victims so he can lure them upstairs and kill them, and Frank can suck up their flesh and blood. He gradually fills out into a fairly plump creature, something like page three of those transparent plastic body part sheets they used to stitch into high school biology textbooks. 
Meanwhile, Larry and Kirsty eventually, after a long, long time, realize there is something amiss in the upstairs room. It is not such a large house that a whole room could easily be forgotten, especially when it contain- contains a flesh-devouring incubus. But I have seen the future of implausible plotting, and his name is Clive Barker. Who goes to see movies like this? What do they get out of them? I like good horror movies because I enjoy being surprised, and sometimes even moved. But there are no surprises in Hellraiser. Only a dreary series of scenes that repeat each other. Oh, is he saying he expected Bone Dragon? Because <laughs> no I guess one expects so. Bone Dragon. Roger Ebert expected Bone Dragon. What fun is it watching the movie mark time until the characters discover the obvious? This is a movie without wit, style, or reason, and the true horror is that actors were made to portray and technicians to realize its bankruptcy of imagination. Maybe Stephen King was thinking of a different Clive Barker. Half a star. Damn. Wow. Damn. That's fucking. Where's your fucking suspension savage. of disbelief? Savage, like, savage dude. Yeah. I I didn't realize that Roger Ebert hated this movie so much. Yeah, I mean, this movie got pretty mixed reviews by critics. I think on Metacritic it sits at like what? 56. Yeah. 56. Um, but all, that's almost solely because of critics and not users. Oh, yeah. I think its user score is something like 88 out of 100. Um, so that's interesting that we were comparing it to The Thing, which I think is a, a good comparison because The Thing was also heavily critically panned when it came out, yeah. like we talked about on and our I, Thing I episode. I think part of it too is critics love subtext and love reading films in a lot of ways. Yeah. And this movie, outside of the allegory or metaphor for addiction and whatnot, there's not much to glean. A lot of it is it. pretty literal, but yeah. I don't think that, I I don't think it, it has a bankruptcy of imagination. You no, know, in a lot of ways, I would almost compare it to like a giallo film. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I would compare it to like, uh, in Argento, where it's more about the experience of watching it than, you know, deeper themes or subtext. You know? Sure, absolutely. The there, but it's... Well, yeah, I mean, it, it does, it has a, a specific story that it wants to tell, and it does so, and yeah, I think it, I think it does journey, it, like, yeah, huh. I think it does it uh, interestingly and, and thoroughly. Um, so, you know, obviously... Roger Ebert was wrong. Yeah. Um, So eat your heart out in heaven or whatever, Roger, because this is a good ass movie. Or or in in whatever realm, yeah. Yeah, whatever. Pain and pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, uh, that's the end of Metacritic Corner for this week. I did have one thought. What's that? About this film. uh, In closing, though. And that's. This film also kind of uh, took a little bit away from, not not that there was much left for me, but there, it took a little bit away from the, like one aspect of the Marvel franchise, which is the Tesseract, and like its power. <laughs> the cube is just such a better plot device than like the like the Marvel Tesseract thing. Like here, it's just it's comedically better, and it's like two decades. Here's prior. a pitch for you crossover yes. event of the of the century Dude, yeah. the uh is that the, what uh, avengers endgame is about yeah. oh my god the, yes uh, the cenobites defeat- secretly switched out with the hellraiser cube man you think you don't feel so good now <laughs> <laughs> 
You just wait. Wouldn't that be great if if they defeated Thanos just because they summoned the Cenobites and they ripped him apart with chains? Uh, I would be much more excited for that movie than I actually am if that was the case. Yeah, well, that is clicking on something I did want to mention is this movie is super, you know, lauded and classic at this point. Yeah. And after the success of Freddy vs. Jason... Uh, in the mid two thousands, the studios were hungry for another horror crossover event. Um, so for a while, in Dimension Films, which is purveyor of all of the dirtbag, awful remakes of that mid two thousands era, we talked about one of them with uh, My Bloody Valentine. Yep, they wanted to do a crossover movie called Halloween versus Hellraiser. <sighs> I'm so so glad that didn't happen. Yeah, so my only guess would be like Michael Myers is hunting someone down. And then suddenly he fi- opens the box, and suddenly the Cenobites are hunting him down. Or I mean, I like can't. That. No, like I said earlier, like the only way for the plot to function, not be good, but to function, would be for it to be a, a periphery scenario. Like it's it's centered around this like random yeah. asshole. I mean, that's what they do in Freddy, Freddy versus Jason. Jason. Yeah, exactly. I I think. I I don't know. Conceptually, it could be interesting having Michael Myers be hunted by the Cenobites just because Michael Myers is already, like, the shape. Right. But also, also, the Cenobites would win. Pinhead would win. I mean... Like, easily. Michael Myers is a man. Let's not have this The argument (laughs) about that stuff is always so stacked whenever you put these enemies up against each other. Like, you could say the same thing about... Freddy Krueger against Jason. Yeah, absolutely. You know? In the end, it's a movie. They can do what they want. But the yeah. thing is, Dimension would obviously have done a terrible job, so I'm glad it didn't happen. Same Conceptually, I, I could see something like that working, that, at least if they went campy with it. That being said, it's not like the the legacy of Hellraiser has been handled properly. I mean, or Halloween. Or Halloween, you know, yeah. No, it's... it's uh, um, it's inevitable that movies like this always just the the franchise has just become dirt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for a while, Patrick Lussier, the guy who actually directed My <sighs> Bloody Valentine, was going to do a remake of Hellraiser. I'm so glad. And the concept didn't. art for it looks god awful. Yeah, man, looks maybe bad. maybe one of these days I'll get past Hellraiser six, but well, I, don't I mean, you know. could just start at seven. Yeah, no, I, I. Well, if I tried, I would. I'm not gonna make myself go through all of those again. I'm not gonna rewatch Hellraiser six again. I can't. I won't. But uh, yeah. Well, before we wrap up, I think it's uh, it's time for a word from our weekly sponsor. You would think that uh, after doing this for like what, like five weeks now or so, like more than that, I more would, than that, I'd yeah. actually like. <laughs> expect it you know like expect expect that to be uh coming but i think that, that is part of the charm uh, uh yeah i mean no i've got i've got some planned for you guys um yeah well you knocking um, the ad reads this week please well you know it's, i slipped I, it under your door i've been a little behind because you know we're still trying to find clotilda after the last uh hanging event uh you know where the we, last hanging uh, event 
She hung herself more than once? It's complicated, okay? Like, maybe, maybe as... She's in a realm of pleasure and pain. Maybe as we further develop her character, more will come to light. But, uh, it's too early for that now. The point is, uh, yeah, I, I sure did get that, that one you sent me. I think, I've got it on me somewhere. Um, uh, you like, uh, uh, you like napkins? You ever, uh, you ever had a good napkin before? Yeah. Well, imagine if they were made out of, uh, of, of feet. Go on. That's all there is. Clark's feet napkins. Get them while they're hot. They're hot? <laughs> yep. Hot feet napkins. Who decided we should go with the sponsor? It's absolute nonsense. Clark's Clark's feet napkins. <laughs> hey man, don't don't uh, don't give a bad time till you try them. Clark's right. feet napkins, which is also their slogan. <laughs> they are paying the bills. Clark's after feet napkins. All. Don't give them a bad time till you try them. They threw a lot of money at us, so that's why uh, we've allowed them to sponsor us this week. But hopefully, we'll have something a little bit better next week. Uh, one can only hope. One but... can only hope. That'll bring us to the end of this episode, and uh, as Ben mentioned earlier, next week we'll be talking about another Clive Barker uh, story, uh, Candyman. Yeah, written by Clive Barker. Not directed by, though. No, not directed, uh, but... I am excited to see what you guys think. I think neither of you have seen that movie. Correct. This is Candyman is one of the ones on my list of shame, like we talked about at the beginning. I've never seen Candyman, and especially coming off of Hellraiser, I'm super stoked. Yeah, and I'm not going to blow my load on it too early, but I am excited. It is quite the movie. I don't want to I don't want to spoil my opinions or bias you guys at all. Well then, but don't. it is quite the movie. All awesome. right. I can't well, wait. Yep. It'll be it'll be the Candyman times next week. But until then, if you like the show and you want to support us, uh, go on to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast and leave us a, uh, a hot and fresh rating and review. We really appreciate that. And uh, if you leave us a good review, I will personally come to your house and. Um, just give you a little kiss and then I'll be gone and you won't have to worry about it. Um, <laughs> but you, you can also or worry about it forever. The choice is yours. Really? Uh, the sights that I have to show you <laughs> <laughs> pleasure and pain. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at pod people pod. Uh, also on letterboxd, uh, letterboxd.com slash pod people pod, where you can see uh, a list of all the films we've talked about on the show with our average ratings and links to the episodes. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Mr. Van awesome for a mix of drunk tweets, wrestling tweets and pictures of my cat. Yeah, and I'm at Mr. Sheets. I think this week I'm going to mix it up a little bit. If anyone listening has a hot take, give me your hottest horror movie take. And uh, if I get any interesting ones, we'll talk about it next week on the show. Yeah, I like that idea. A little community interaction. It's yeah. Like, good idea. See, that's, that's good. Call to action. Yeah, there you go. Well, hey, you've been called. Will you respond? Will you uh, answer the call? Speaking of, uh, you can hit me up via my art station if you want to uh, check out some of my work, which is under Cleveland Mosier or Iron Prism. And uh, occasionally uh, check out uh, what Light Arc Studio I'm, I'm tweeting about for them. Check out what I'm tweeting for them. That's, yeah. That's how words do. Uh, and I believe that's about it. Uh, you know, we'll hopefully have something for It Stares Back pretty soon. Hell yeah. 
All right. Well, thank you as always for listening. Check back next week to see what the Candyman can do, do. for um, us. <laughs> until until then, we are the Pod People. And uh, I think it's about time we get back to our dimension of pain and pleasure. So, bye! Have a wonderful evening.